You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. This week on the Renegade Economist, we have Professor Michael Hudson back on the show to discuss the state of modern economic warfare. So much of the Northern Hemisphere is in economic turmoil. The demise after trillions of dollars of quantitative easing has made a very little difference. Today, Michael Hudson discusses this in the context of his new book, J is for Junk Economics. Well, the Northern Hemisphere is really the future of what stands in uh, store for uh, Australia, especially countries like Greece, uh, which is uh, very heavily uh, indebted. You could say the United States uh, is just a model for what happens when the real estate bubble gets uh, overinflated and then it bursts and the debts remain in place, but the market price of housing falls and so families fall into negative equity. That's what happened after 2008 and a choice was made by the Obama administration. Either you save the banks or you save the economy and you can't save both. So the bank's uh, balance sheets fell into negative equity, uh, insolvency, when about 10 million families were unable to uh, pay their mortgage and fell behind in the mortgage. And so to bail out the banks and to tide them over, the Federal Reserve pretended that this was not a liquidity problem, this was an insolvency problem, but they left the debts in place. So the uh, homeowners who owed money on the mortgages didn't pay the banks, they defaulted, uh, they sold the properties, hedge funds came in and bought the properties, uh, the ratio of home ownership in America fell from about 68% down to 62%, the largest decline in home ownership uh, recorded in American history, I think. And uh, the result was that uh, the economy is just going on in the doldrums. There's no way the economy can recover uh, as long as uh, people have to pay the banks uh, for the debt that they ran up before 2008. Markets are shrinking, uh, not only for goods and services, but also for uh, uh, rental properties. So uh, commercial uh, rental space is emptying out in places like uh, New York City and other places. So the economy is shrinking and shrinking. There hasn't been any recovery from 2008, except for the 1%. And uh, the 1% has recovered very nicely, making money off the 99%. But the recovery for the 99% has not occurred. It's continued to go shrink and shrink and shrink. And it's going to continue to do that as long as they leave the debts in place. And there's no sign at all of writing them down. So that's the quandary that uh, the West is in. You, you try to bail out the banks, but there's no way to leave the debts in place and still... Uh, save the economy from shrinking. With record low global interest rates, bondholders must be screaming with what's happening. What are the bond markets telling the global economy? Have they still got confidence that uh, quantitative easing era can continue? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, who, are the, who are the bondholders, first of all? Well, for one thing, pension funds. If you don't want to take a risk in the stock market, or a risk on Wall Street, then you buy bonds. And so the pension funds are only able to make risk-free about 
in government bonds these days. And yet, in order to pay the pensions, the pension funds have to make 8.5% each year. There is no way that pension funds can make the rate at which uh, they'd expected uh, to be able to pay retirees. So either they have to write down the pensions and pay the retirees much less, or they have to raise the employee contributions and the employer contributions. And if they do that, that's going to leave even less money in the economy, either by the employers or by the employees. Uh, so it's going to shrink. So it's obvious that at low interest rates like this, the pensions can't be paid. Same things for the other uh, major holder of bonds, insurance companies. Insurance companies have promised to pay annuities and promised to pay uh, a life insurance, and, uh, casualty insurance, and other insurance things, expecting to make 8%, 9%, but they're only making 1% unless they take big gambles. Uh, and so uh, the insurance industry is suffering. As for the other bondholders, the banks, they're making money by borrowing cheaply from the Federal Reserve at one-tenth of a percent interest and uh, speculating or foreign currency arbitrage or lending to Australians who are willing to pay a much higher interest rate, thinking that they can get rich uh, off uh, the capital gains. Uh, but as we saw in America, that doesn't work for very long. The question for me is, though, that the, the role of record low interest rates has sent the market channeling in, into property flipping again and so many nations are above or near 2008 peak land house prices uh, how, how are they ever meant to get their way out of this have they signed the death knell for monetary policy because they really can't increase interest rates without sending a whole pile of without sending millions of people into foreclosure that's the problem. They've locked themselves into low interest rates. If they raise interest rates, for one thing, uh, a lot of people who, uh, banks and uh, money managers, have borrowed cheaply from the banks to buy uh, stocks. In, in fact, 95% uh, of corporate earnings in the United States are spent on stock buybacks uh, or on uh, paying out dividends. So you can borrow. Uh, uh, let's say you're a speculator. You can borrow at 1% if you're a brokerage house or a bank. Borrow cheap credit from the Fed, buy stocks paying dividends at a higher rate, and make an arbitrage. But what this does is load down the companies uh, with debt. Uh, and when companies buy back their own stock, uh, they're reducing equity, and they're increasing the ratio of debt to equity. So the low interest rates are helping overload the economy with debt and make it top-heavy with debt. Uh, and debt equity ratios have continued to go up. If they raise interest rates, then the stock prices are going to go down, but the money that uh, companies have borrowed to buy their own stock, the debt is going to stay in place. Same with homeowners. Um, if the interest rates go up, uh, the mortgages uh, uh, money will become less available, and uh, a property's worth whatever a bank will lend against it, so property prices will fall, but the debts will remain in place, just as they have in the United States. And that's the quandary. The, the, uh, the central banks are stuck. They don't see any way out of it. One way that they've massaged a, a monetary focus here in Australia, one way they have alleviated some of those concerns here in Australia is to allow for 40 to 50 year mortgages here. 
So that of course has allowed the property market to continue to grow. What other aspects do you see monetarists leaning on to continue their control of economic and fiscal policy? Well, 40 to 50 year mortgage is moving towards what you had uh, in the United States uh, around 2008, uh, interest only mortgages. The uh, banks really don't want to get repaid. Ever. They just want to collect interest forever. So uh, they're quite happy not to have homeowners cutting back the loan payment of the principal. All they really want is the interest. So uh, homeowners are paying for the apartment, paying for the mortgage, paying for the home without writing down the debts, without working them off as they used to do uh, after World War II to about 2008. Yeah, so. It really is a mystery what they have planned for the next step forward because I can't see how they're going to uh, raise wages in order to justify, uh, I mean they have to find some way to raise wages in order for interest rates to be able to be increased again. If the debts can't be repaid uh, and nobody's expecting wages to be raised, in fact what they're expecting is pensions to be cut back and government social spending to be cut back because uh, uh, tax revenues are falling as the economy becomes more financialized because interest is tax deductible. So the whole economy is becoming squeezed. That's why I say, look at what's happened in Greece is a dress rehearsal for what's happening for the rest of Europe, for the Northern Hemisphere, and for Australia. Well, let's hope all of this economic and financial pain is leading more and more people to study what economics is all about. Now, in Killing the Host, you talked about how the 1% have, have really pushed to reduce the power of the state and to undermine it at every occasion. As Donald Trump said last week, uh, it's smart not to pay taxes. Well, uh, that all adds up to undermine the power of the state to keep in check these natural monopolies. How can the the average citizen um, try and pick up on what's going on around them economically? Uh, what is the state? Uh, the financial sector has tried to minimize the power of democratic electoral politics. They've centralized the state. What is called the free market is basically a shift of central planning out of uh, the goods and services, out of labor, out of elected representatives, out of Congress, into the hands of the central bank, which means into the hands of Wall Street, uh, the city of London, Frankfurt, uh, Paris, uh, and the banking centers. So uh, the free market philosophy is basically a totalitarian centralization of planning in the hands of financial money managers in Wall Street and other financial centers. So uh, what we've seen since 2008 is not a weakening of the state. It's a weakening of the government's power to tax uh, rent and uh, landlords and property and finance. It's a weakening of the government's power to regulate uh, the economy, but it's a strengthening of the takeover of government by Wall Street. So what we're doing is reversing history for the last 200 years. We've reversed the 200 years of parliamentary reform in England, Europe, uh, the United States, and we've once again empowered what used to be the House of Lords or the upper house of government, but instead of the House of Lords or the Senate, it's now the central bank. And you have that in Greece. Uh, after the Greeks uh, uh, in uh, last year 
elected Syriza not to pay the debts and to uh, avoid austerity, uh, the Germans and the IMF told uh, Yanis Varoufakis, the finance minister for the new party, uh, we don't, elections don't change anything. It doesn't matter what voters vote for, the financial uh, sector is ruling the state. So instead of what used to be the state, what you have really is a central bank taking over the power of the state and you have, in a essence, a neo-feudalism, a rolling back of democracy uh, and a financial oligarchy. So there's a democratic state and there's a uh, oligarchic state. We've moved back from the uh, democratic state that seemed to be developed in the 20th century back towards the oligarchic state controlled by the financial centers. Your new book, J is for Junk Economics, gives a, a witty insight breaking down some of the, the econo-speak that we hear and read every day in the news cycle, um, uh, revealing uh, its true intention. Uh, what has it meant to you seeing the, the state of economic analysis over the last 50-odd years? Well, what passes for mainstream economic analysis basically is a system of uh, a rhetoric of deception. Uh, the idea of mainstream economics uh, basically isn't to explain how the economy works. It's to pretend that uh, trickle-down economics is good. It's to pretend that economies need opportunity in order to survive, which means to survive by paying the 1%. So mainstream economics is basically a rationalization for why uh, industry and labor should shrink and turn over the economic surplus uh, to the financial sector, to the mortgage lenders and the banks and the creditors and the speculators, uh, as if somehow this is the end of history. This is a force of nature. And it's a kind of blame the victim rhetoric, which says if people are poor, uh, and not uh, billionaires on Wall Street, it's their own fault. It's because they're not as productive as people who work Goldman Sachs and other people who make uh, million-dollar uh, bonuses and salaries. So uh, mainstream economics is basically an attempt to blame the victims for austerity instead of saying, look, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. There is an alternative. and But the alternative means we're going to have to write down the debts and we're going to have to restore progressive taxation as there was before 1980. And most of all, it's not really between the 1% and the 99%. The problem is how the 1% makes the money. A mainstream economics says all income is earned. And uh, uh, there's no difference between making money in real estate speculation or financial speculation or building a factory to employ labor to produce more goods and services. So uh, what I'm, uh, my book, uh, J.S. for Junk Economics, goes back, and I, I juxtapose today's mainstream economics or classical economics that uh, was based on the distinction between earned and unearned income between uh, income that actually is needed to produce goods and services and overhead, which used to be called the rentiers, the landowners and the banks in the 19th century, and the monopolists that uh, governments created uh, monopolies to pay the creditors to uh, pay off their uh, uh, royal debts. Uh, so you, you've had really uh, a turnaround of economic terminology to the opposite of what it meant Adam Smith and 
John Stewart Mill and others. Uh, to Adam Smith and Mill and uh, the classical economists, a free market was a market free from rent, free from absentee landlords, free from predatory banks and unproductive credit. But now a free market means a government, uh, a market free from the government regulating the economy, free for the rentiers, free for the landlords to rack rent, free for the banks to make unproductive credit, free for the creditors to rewrite the bankruptcy loans in their favor against debtors. So you've had a 180 degree turn away from what used to be viewed as uh, classical economics and progressive era economics. There's been a lot of talk about how uh, the academics were sponsored by the robber barons in the 1880s to transform away from classical economics, which made these recognitions between earned and unearned income into neoclassical economics. How did the uh, linguistics develop during that time and what were some of the main pressure points that, that led to some of these very, very subtle changes that not many people can decipher? Well, it wasn't very subtle. There was a big fight in the 1890s. In America, it was centered around John Bates Clark, for whom the American Economic Association awards a medal every year. And Clark said, uh, it's wrong to say that landlords and bankers don't earn their money. Everybody earns however much uh, they make. They earn by, by definition contributing to production. And so that led to a uh, very anti-classical concept of national income accounting. If you take Goldman Sachs, the partners, I think, make $23 million a year in salary, not counting bonuses, all this salary is counted in the national income and product accounts as adding to output. It's as if the financial sector and the real estate sector and the insurance sector, the insurance monopolies, actually that their income isn't monopoly income. It's as if all everything they take from the 99% adds to output instead of being extractive. So uh, around 1890, the classical concept of predatory, unproductive, extractive income was uh, denied and all income was defined as being earned in proportion to the contribution to production made uh, by the landlord when he collects the rent or by the banker when he creates interest or by the pharmaceutical companies, the other monopolies when they charge monopoly rent. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist show with Professor Michael Hudson. Michael, uh, with economic policymakers basically cornering themselves with record low interest rates and a very little chance of a, a genuine raise in wages, then the, the upcoming issue of our times is really going to be debt cancellation and the Jubilee movement. It's going to have to come back. Uh, what can you tell us about past learnings from the Jubilee movement and what could be done to build up the confidence amongst the electorate that this could actually happen? Well, the, the original Jubilee, as you find it in uh, the Bible, was really the Babylonian Jubilee. They actually canceled the debt, uh, the consumer debts. The idea of the Jubilee movement, uh, unfortunately, is by Bono and the others, is a movement by the bankers to shift the debt onto the people. It's not to cancel the debt. They want, uh, they can see that uh, the debts are too large to be paid. You can't both repay the governments for the money owed to the government and uh, the private sector. So they want the governments, the IMF, 
and the official creditors to relinquish their debt claims on third world countries and others so that all of the money of the third world countries can go to pay commercial banks. They don't realize this. The Bono and the others mean well. They try to write down the debt, but the debts are so large now that the question is, whose debt are you going to write down in, and who's going to get paid? And if the, uh, the U.S. government and the IMF and the inter-institutional creditors relinquish their claims on government, then all the governments, the third world government's money can go to the private bondholders. And today, the Jubilee movement wants the private bondholders to be paid, not the official uh, institutions. So this is part of the oligarchic takeover. Uh, the Jubilee movement is basically a front organization by the banks, by well-meaning but useful idiots who don't realize, who don't do the mathematics. Uh, and don't realize that what you need is to free the economies from paying the debts. Uh, you want to cancel the debts owed to the bondholders, yeah, not uh, uh, all the other debts. Uh, you, uh, all the debts have to be written down, and there's no way of doing it partially. Uh, you can't write down some debts on a piecemeal, bit-by-bit -bit basis. The debt overhead is so large today that uh, either you write them all down and make a clean slate, or you continue to suffer austerity. Now, the model for the clean slate is very clear. It's what happened in Germany in 1948 with the Allied monetary reform. All internal debts of Germany were canceled, except for the, the debts that employers owed their uh, employees for the last few weeks, and minimum working balances. And the reason they were able to do this was most debts were owed to the Nazis. And they said, look, part of the denazification, we're going to start with a clean slate. That was the German economic miracle, uh, the write-down. That is what the, uh, the basic focus should be on today. The biblical cancellation was based on Babylonian practice, and in that case, business debts were not written off. The Jubilee only er erased the debts owed by consumers uh, to creditors, not uh, the debts owed among businessmen for the normal course of business. Uh, there's a long tradition in that, and I'll be publishing a long, uh, I've actually done a series of uh, five colloquia uh, organized at Harvard University, uh, including debt and economic renewal in the ancient Near East, where I go over the uh, mechanics of the debt cancellation. Uh, David Graeber discusses this and reviews a lot of my ideas and his book on debt, The First 5,000 Years. So there's a long uh, history of debt cancellations that worked. Uh, every ancient society maintained solvency by wiping out the debts when new rulers came to power. You'd start every royal reign with a clean slate and prosperity, and uh, or if there was a drought or a flood and uh, the debts couldn't be paid by a basically rural society, the rural debts were wiped out. It was obvious that debts that couldn't be paid should be wiped out, otherwise you'd be reducing the whole population to debt bondage, and uh, the failure to wipe out debts today is reducing entire populations, such as Greece for starters, uh, into debt peonage. How could you write down those debts without wiping out so many pension funds that really seems to be the invisible noose around ref reformers' necks these days is what will happen to pension funds? Well, you're right. If you wipe, if you wipe down a debt on the uh, liability side of the balance sheet, then you wipe down an asset somebody's savings on the other side of the balance sheet. And the fact is, yes, the pension funds would uh, have their holdings wiped out. No problem. 
pension funds never should have been financialized to begin with. The whole idea of pension fund capitalism uh, hijacked uh, labor savings to pay in a, a financial, to turn over to the financial sector instead of a pay-as-you-go basis. Basically, the government would take responsibility for paying pensions, which is how uh, it was supposed to work from the beginning, uh, ever since Bismarck in, the, uh, in Germany in the 19th century. So, of course, people would get pensions. It would be paid by government instead of uh, creating $4.3 to to... Uh, pay uh, uh, the banks and the bondholders, the, the money that the governments would collect would be used to pay pensions and other social programs. Instead of paying the rental value of property, the free lunch income, interest and rent to the banks, you would have a public banking replace the banks and the, the taxes from the rental value and from the, uh, the rentier income that used to be paid to uh, a separate oligarchic sector would now be used to pay pensions on a pay-as-you-go basis. Wouldn't it be nice if we could channel the property bubble away from the banking system and towards government to give us a tax cut and enable the doubling of pensions? Perhaps that could be a way forward. Well, that's exactly what Adam Smith and uh, John Stuart Mill and the other economists uh, all were writing about. Uh, and this is why the history of economic thought has been dropped from the academic curriculum because they don't want people to realize that, wait a minute, there is a way to do things differently. It doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, all of the so-called heroes of economic, the founders of classical economy, all saw this, uh, from the physiocrats, Adam Smith, down through Marx, Veblen, Simon Patton. This was everyday knowledge in the 19th century, and it's all been expurgated from the curriculum, and that's part of what uh, J is for Junk Economics is about. And if you were to summarize it in a nutshell, could you say economics really defines what a natural advantage is? And that's part of the distinction that's been clouded over in this neoclassical, neoliberal era. The, the basis of economics is value and price theory. And by that, what is meant, it's a balance sheet analysis. It's uh, how much of the cost of producing goods and services actually are necessary and how many are unnecessary? Do you really need landlord's rent and uh, bank interest uh, as part of this? Do you really need a class whose income is extractive for an economy to operate efficiently producing goods and services? Alternatively, you can uh, take the beginning of what economists call Say's Law. When uh, wages are paid, how much of the wage income of workers is available to be spent on the goods and services they produce. If they can't afford to buy the goods and services, then there's going to be a shrinkage. And if they have to pay more and more of their income to the banks and more of their income uh, to taxes that are shifted off the financial sector, off rent, uh, off landlords, onto them, then uh, you're going to have austerity. And so if you, the classical economic model very clearly explains austerity and uh, that's what economics should be doing today, not the, the, the pretense that all this austerity is necessary and that, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. Well, Professor Michael Hudson, thanks so much for joining us here. We've been recording in 
tumbling waters the Northern Territory right next to a crocodile infested uh, billabong as the sun rises so uh, a bit of background noise there but it's all fun and games as we keep an eye on this incredible disadvantage uh, the everyday person has when uh, the the level playing field has been tilted so dramatically towards those who own the earth and its natural monopolies. Well, it's good to be here. The book won't be available until the beginning of November. We're still doing the final proofreading of the, uh, the typeset version. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Carol.